Good morning. It is the 13th of December, 2013, Feast of St. Lucy. And this story came across my desk the other day. It was Cardinal Zen giving some thoughts about the Synod on Synodality. And I had sat on the story, not sure what to do with it, because sometimes the audience wants to see things from Cardinal Zen, sometimes not. And then I saw this story that's starting to go all over the internet. And this is a story from Henry Sear, who is the author of the tell-all book about Pope Francis from several years ago. He published it before the Amazon Synod, which was really the point when a lot of people began to wake up. Those who hadn't been convinced by Morris Letizia began to wake up with the Pacamama debacle on the altars in 2019. And then the church's response to this stuff that went on the next year. And you begin to see how people began to wake up. But his book was pretty important, and but it's largely been forgotten. Well, then he has this article that gets published in 1 Peter 5, and it's so big I can't cover the whole thing today, so I'm not going to. I'm going to just zero in, though, on one part here, and I want to, the article is, uh, I would put it on, I would put the actual text of the article on screen from the website, but the text is a little small, and I've had some people ask me to be careful about this. So I just copied the relevant text from his article at 1 Peter 5 into a Word document. Well, it's a Google a Google Docs document, and you can see the red lines there are because of he, he's an Englishman, and he has the English way of spelling the English language. <laughs> so, um, And uh, Americans tend to spend things, spell things a little differently. So Cardinal Zen had thoughts on the synod, the Synod also issued a new document to the laity in the, in the last couple of days that Pastor Jimmy Martin of the Jesuit Church shared on Twitter. And I'm not going to read the whole thing of that to you, but it's um, after I think the order will do things in here is we'll talk about Henry Sear just a little bit here, the relevant part of it. And then we'll talk about the Synod document. And then we'll end with what Cardinal Zen had to say. And I think you'll see that Cardinal Zen is the voice of that Cardinal Zen and Henry Sear here are the voice of reason. And as they, the synod is being exposed for what it is. And if you want to know what that is, well, here's what Henry Sear had to say in his article at 1 Peter 5, which is based on a talk he gave. And you can listen to the, the full talk if you want. It's like 45 minutes long. I know I listened to the whole thing yesterday. Um, they put it in a podcast form. Unfortunately, it's on a podcast platform that is like has a paywall, but you can listen to the bit for free through the 1 Peter 5 website. So, um, but here's what he, Henry Sear had to say about this. Serious as all this is, we need to pay more attention to the recently closed Synod on Synodality because it's the means by which Pope Francis is attempting to institutionalize his revolution. The first comment to make is that all these synods, including the two previous ones on the family, have been managed so as to enable a clique of modernists to advance their program under the pretense of consultative process. To quote an Italian observer, the development of the various synods of this pontificate, starting with the one on the family and finishing a resounding fashion with the latest, shows that the rules of discussions and deliberations prepared before that with the selection of the participants themselves have been changed repeatedly so as to silence the obvious rejection on the part of the ecclesial majority of the single line of thought which was being attempted to impose on it and to prevent the emergence within the synod of a line that did not agree with the one predetermined from the top. Let's pause there. We saw that numerous times. How many reports did you see or hear about, maybe in Facebook groups or whatever, that don't worry about the synod? There are lay people there who are participating, who are defending the traditional Latin mass. And 
coming, you know, speaking the Catholic position on that topic that James Martin has such a weird interest in, et cetera, et cetera. Those groups were ignored completely. And the entire process was designed to keep the prelates who were there that were good, like Cardinal Mueller, from being able to speak the truth about for very long. They had three minutes to talk for the whole thing. It was, otherwise it was uh, broken into group meetings sitting around a round table where they discussed various topics and they were assigned to those groups and and rarely were they able to talk outside their own groups. The thing was very clearly orchestrated and that is what the Italian observer says here. So anyway, back to Henry Sear. Nevertheless, when the final report emerged from the synod, we all received a surprise. It proved to be unexpectedly inconclusive. Many of us were puzzled by this for a moment, but we got the explanation from a news revelation that appeared shortly afterwards. This was the disclosure of a plan to change the rules for the papal conclave, so as to introduce the participation of lay people, including women. What this showed us was the point of the preceding synod had not been the document to emerge from it, but the process itself. It was designed to soften up the church for a revolution in the papal election. Thus, we had bishops making declarations like, it will be impossible from now on to hold a synod without lay participation. If that was so, people would also be demanding a papal election under similar conditions. This news story disclosed that conversations had been in progress for months between the Pope and Cardinal Ghirlanda to change the conclave rules. Cardinal Ghirlanda, by the way, besides being a Jesuit, is the propounder of an extreme theological view of papal power, which makes him the ideal agent to entrench the regime of papal dictatorship. As soon as the story broke, there was a prompt denial from the Vatican, accompanied by furious efforts within the various dicasteries to find out who had been responsible for the leak. The lesson this showed was that the Vatican found it had lost control of the narrative as they say nowadays, and had been embarrassed by a revelation which preempted its plans. I think there can be little doubt that the reform, so-called, will go ahead, but I presume that the premature revelation has upset Pope Francis's schedule. That is from the article by Henry Sear, which I'll show you here, just to, so you see, so I'm not just, you know, reading my own thoughts for those who might not be aware of this. This, you know, as published by 1 Peter 5, Pope Francis, how much lower can we sink? with a picture of uh, Card- then Cardinal Bergoglio. Well, this was published just a couple of days ago, and I do fully intend to go over this in much greater detail, probably in tomorrow's live stream, unless a big story happens. Because again, Cardinal Zen is giving us his thoughts on the Synod, and Cardinal Zen is actually one of my favorite prelates in the church, full stop. And it's not because he's, you know, has, he himself admitted he is not a theologian. He is just a shepherd, and he is the, model shepherd for you know there are different kinds of bishops in the church some are like schneider or burke or uh, cardinal Seurat, who all have different kinds of theological things they bring to the theological table and others are more of the cut from the mold of the shepherds which are your stricklands and your zens and those sorts of figures and cardinal zen is one of those who even in his writings and when you see interviews with him he radiates this holy peace and he's one of my favorites and we're going to visit spend a little bit of time with him in a moment, but I want to actually bring to you what James Martin had to say about the, the, the synod on synodality, this new document, because what they're having is they, they've released this new document. It's like five, four, five pages long from the general secretary to the synod. And it's uh, more towards working towards October, 2024, where the final meeting of the synod will be before Francis issues a final document thereafter. And they have 
several things that they want you to be aware of that they we need to go deeper, they are saying, because of course they want the synod to go forever and ever and ever. And what they really want more than anything else is the synod on sin to actually go and be brought to your levels and to the, to the made permanent in the actual parish level. So what they say here is in their document that there needs to be the guiding questions need to be addressed on two levels. One at the level of each church. How can we enhance the differentiated co-responsibility in the mission of all members of the people of God? Well, first, this is like very, this is the kind of language that you see in public administration. And I know because I have a PhD in public affairs and policy, which is a hybrid of public administration and political science. I had to read a lot of public administration in my programs. And this is the language you see. This is the writing style you see in that document. This is the writing style of the driest of the social sciences. The ones that are not usually prone to some of the more, we'll call them exaggerated claims about social conditions. Public administration is concerned with how to run a parks department and how to run like the department of state and that sort of thing. <clears throat> but this is the kind of language you see in that, that field of inquiry. <clears throat> what they're saying here is what ways of relating structures, processes of discernment and decision-making with regard to mission, make it possible to recognize, shape and promote co-responsibility. So what's co-responsibility? Co-responsibility is the idea that because through our baptism, we, the people of God, to use the Vatican II language, we all share in the common priesthood of the, of the believer. We then have a co-responsibility to run the church. <laughs> it's a bit of a leap. It's a logical leap because the church is hierarchical in nature. Christ established the church to be hierarchical. Yes, there's a role in the laity in some things, sure. But managing the church? But this is what they're going for. It's the process that matters. Remember, because if they can get the process down and if they can get everything decentralized and the laity running things, then they can get everything else that they want because the laity agree in large part with the hierarchs who are modernists. At the level of relations between churches, between groupings of churches at different levels and with the Bishop of Rome, how can these relations be creatively articulated in order to find, quote, a dynamic balance between the dimension of the church as a whole and its local roots? This is pulling power back away from Rome, at least from the dicasteries. Remember, the model of the papacy we're being, being given now is power centralized in the pontiff in a way that it does not conform to history. So you'll end up having this kind of a weird dichotomy of decentralized decision-making and centralized power directed essentially by the pontiff in ways that would have made Pius IX blush, and he was very much a strong pope. Each local church is invited to carry out a further consultation, meaning if you think your, your parish and your diocese was done with a synod, think again. Pastor Jimmy Martin shared this with like a, or in another tweet, he shared a picture of like the, what the, 2024 is going to look like at the for this synodal process and it's it's a lot it's more parish more parish discussions more diocesan discussions all this kind of thing to be clear this work is not a question of starting the synodal process from scratch or repeating the process of listening and consult consultation undertaken during the first stage in this stage, in addition to participatory bodies at diocesan level and the synodal team already established, it will be important to involve people in groups that express a variety of experiences, skills, charisms, ministries within the people of God, and whose point of view is of particular help in focusing on the how, meaning ordained ministers, meaning parish priests, 
other pastoral leaders, catechists, and leaders of grassroots communities. They never tell you what that means, by the way. And small Christian communities, another term that's vague. Leaders of pastoral offices, consecrated men and women, leaders of lay associations, ecclesial movements, and new communities. Again, none of that has a concrete meaning. This is just laity, laity, laity. This could be your Catholic Charities person. This could be your some rabble rouser among the laity who have, has position takes positions that are completely contrary to the Catholic faith while maintaining that they are themselves a Catholic in good standing, and now they want to bring this person in. Or on the on the flip side of that, it could also be someone who is a voice uh, for orthodoxy. Your uh, I don't know your traditional parish. You may have someone who is a member of your parish community who is looked upon as a leader among the community for things, but, you know, doesn't let their ego drive them. But all that having been said, who do you think this is going to be? This is going to be handpicked people. So the Episcopal conferences in the Eastern hierarchical structures are the reference point for this part of the process and are invited to coordinate the collection of contributions from dioceses and eparchies, setting up its methods and timing. They're looking for contributions to theological canonical expertise, as well as the human and social sciences. Again, when you start when you start connecting theology to social sciences, it becomes very dicey. This isn't new. Pope Leo XIII was addressing the errors of the social sciences when he issued Rerum Novarum, when he was talking about the errors of like economics of the day. But that was in the 1880s. This is a little different here. They're talking about you know dialoguing with sociology and dialoguing with political science and dialoguing with all these other schools of thought. But they're looking up, a, they want, you know, eight page documents issued from, uh, from these diocesan levels and Episcopal conferences in order to keep the synodal dynamism alive, to promote the most appropriate initiatives to involve the whole people of God, formative activities, theological in-depth studies, celebrations in synodal style, grassroots consultations, listening to minority populations and groups living in conditions of poverty and social marginality, spaces in which to address controversial issues, etc. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like the secular program coming from one specific side of the political spectrum. So they're and they're looking to invoke this with the religious congregations, institutes of consecrated life, lay associations, ecclesial movements and new communities, the same groups we talked about before that we that are very vague in their meaning. Each local church that wishes to do so may send to the Episcopal Conference or to the Eastern Hierarchical Structure to which it belongs a brief testimony of the work carried out and the experiences lived. Be worried when you see the word, when you see any variation of lived experiences, that is actually condemned by Pashendi, the uh, Declaration Against Modernism by Pope St. Pius X. He warns that part of the method of the modernist is to reduce the faith to your personal experience. That's the validity of the faith comes down to your personal experience of it, which is heresy. Um, this is, of course, this phase here will be done by the 15th of May. And then you start getting, uh, you know, more decentralization. And at least they're acknowledging the East in this. But I will tell you right now, when you start, the East is going to be, Eastern rites of the church are going to be, um, they're a little bit better on the orthodoxy thing, so to speak. <laughs> now check the chat here before we go to Cardinal Zen. So good morning to everybody in the chat. Um, Raven Ray on the responding to the point made about the uh, what Henry Sear said in the previous thing that I was uh, going over 
that the not even the Roman emperors would dare interfere in a papal election, except there have been a couple cases where they in, where the Holy Roman emperors would veto the election of a pontiff, but it was only under like extreme circumstances. And the last time that happened was with the election of I don't remember his name, but there was somebody who was elected, and the uh, Holy Roman Emperor said no. And instead, they went back and elected Pope St. Pius X. So it worked out. But then one of the first things Pius X did was eliminate that practice. Probably because he could see the writing on the wall for the Holy Roman Empire. But still, um, there is no external check like that anymore. But it's only done under the rarest of circumstances. Now they want to bring laity into at least the consultation phase. And if you listen to what Henry Sear was saying about it, not even just the consultation phase, but the actual del deliberations and the voting and all the rest of it at the at the coming uh whenever the next conclave is maybe 2024 my money's more like 2025 or 2026 though Teresa says the document seems to encourage protestant power scary as in the diocese of perth we already have an archdiocese and synodal committee this will make huge changes here watch this diocese by the way Teresa, i just want to let you know i'm covering some news out of uh perth in my regular news video that is, you are a member of the channel. You may have watched already because you have access to the video, but it'll be going live at 5 a.m. That you should check that video out. Um, many people have sent me some news about a traditional priest there who just uh, who just got the uh, traditionus custodis treatment. So, never ending synod. Yeah, traditionalist Catholic, I'll tell you that it is. Um, this is the permanent adjournamento that we got after Vatican II. But let's um, let us go now to Cardinal Zen, who was the actual main reason that we are here let me see problem with this system here is there it is we can't we isn't sharing with the, the screen sharing doesn't always work as well as smoothly as that i would like so here cardinal zen is speaking a little bit is giving an interview to um and a lot of it's about advent and maybe i can cover his advent thoughts on the weekend or something but since we're talking about the synod but he gave this one also to 1 Peter 5, and this one was published uh, yesterday. And they actually asked him, because he, he has a new book out, so feel free to go on to Amazon or wherever it is you like to buy your, your Catholic books. And if you want a good Advent reflection book, it's still early enough in Advent that you could probably read this during Advent. It gives you some meditations and things, and you'll probably find it there. But we're going to go down here to where he talks about where he's asked this. In the church, this seems like a delicate moment, a moment in which there are divisions and unrest in some countries, such as Germany. What has been your experience facing these things? So Germany has the German Sonata way, right? It's, um, if you think the Synod on Synodality was bad, the German Sonata way is infinitely worse because, or it's more honest anyway, because the German Sonata way, they're just openly asking for all the things that you, that the church can't do. They're just blatantly asking for it and, and, basically threatening to go into schism over it. And so this is what they're asking him about. And his response is, I am concerned. What is happening in Germany seems to me to be similar to what happened in Holland, where the faith experienced a devastating crisis. I am concerned that some, under the pretext of synodality, may wish to advance a very personal agenda, which involves the introduction of ideas which are in direct conflict with the doctrine of the church, a doctrine which the church has the duty to cherish and which cannot change. 
Today, we are experiencing great confusion, and I believe there is appropriate to point out that openness to new does not mean distorting the foundations of our faith. The dear pontiff, Benedict XVI, whom I remember with so much affection, warned us of the danger of these doctrinal landslides. How much is this that I is still listened to? It seems to me that today his legacy is not respected, and it is a shame because he was great intellectual for the church. Yet I seem to see signs of great discontinuity between what happens today and previous pontificates. That's a big statement, by the way. The Jesus we entrust his bark, his church, during the storm on the lake, because only he can lead it to safety. Part of what the modernists have said is that Francis is a continuation with Benedict, that there's perfect harmony there with Benedict, and that the main differences you see are about style and Francis responding to crises that Benedict didn't address. That's their claim. In some cases, you can make that, that case, especially when it comes to interaction with the secular realm. Benedict was... Not that different than Francis, especially on the Laudato Si issue. I know because I have a book about his thoughts on that subject and where he called for much of the same sort of governing stuff that Francis did. That is just a fact. It's not a popular thing to say, but it is a fact. But that having been said, on terms of hard, like hard theology, there is a discontinuity. I mean, it's very clearly a discontinuity. Fran uh, Benedict famously said no to Walter Casper about uh, com opening up communion to whoever wants communion. All sorts of things. It's also discontinuity between the post-conciliar era and the pre-conciliar era. That's a topic for another time. Cardinal Zen is then asked, the synod on synodality has just concluded. What do you think? The response is, here too, I couldn't help but express my concern. The synod, as St. Paul VI warned, wanted it, sorry, is a consultative body for the bishops in union with the Pope. It might seem like making non-bishops vote would be a good thing, but in reality, it is not for the simple fact that it distorts what a synod should be. In this way, the very structure of the church is affected. On 15th of September, 1965, Paul VI built the synod as an emanation of the council and specified, quote, with our apostolic authority, we start and constitute in this noble city a permanent council of bishops for the universal church, subject to directly and immediately to our power in which we name the Synod of Bishops. Again, there's your permanent aggiornamento. Synod of Bishops. Of course, a little further on, the Pope said that the Synod could be perfected, but not in the sense of being distorted. I did not hide my dismay at some of the initiatives that were seen during the days of the Synod, and I felt a certain discouragement. This I must confess. He's does see what he's saying here is the synod on synodality is not the same thing as what Pope Paul VI started, where which was just a, a, practically this two to three year cycle of having bishops come together in Rome or elsewhere and meet on behalf of the whole church to discuss some salient issue of the day, bring their their findings to the Pope, who then imposes them on the church if he feels he needs to, and this has happened for like fifty years basically. But there's this is a discontinuity because this synod involves laity in the discussions and in the voting process, which is not how things have always gone in the church. And so we'll so here's his so here he goes. Fi the final question he is asked is: You seem very worried about this synod. You with other cardinals also signed the dubia addressed to the Holy Father, who this time responded, "Are you not happy?" You remember the dubia that was issued and responded to just before the synod. And it was used as a way to undermine the authority of Cardinal Burke, actually, the way they, that Rome handled it, especially since he followed this, the, they responded, Burke and the, and Zen and the other signers of this new dubia asked some basic questions, didn't get good answers they liked. So they answered them because they, the answers they got were so vague, you could read anything you wanted to in them. And so they asked 
the same questions in a simpler way as if they were talking to children and asked them, you know, said yes or no will suffice on the various questions they got. And those have never been responded to. Fernandez did not bother responding. So here's Cardinal Zen's response to all of this. Here it is not a question of being happy. The Pope or someone on his behalf drafted a response unusually quickly to our dubia, but unfortunately the response does not really clarify the issues we had submitted to him. It seems to be the usual method used in the church in recent decades, in which one does not answer yes, yes, no, no, but gives answers that apparently close the front door on some issues, leaving the back door wide open. The people of God need clarity. They need to have firm references in matters of doctrine and morality, not these slippery answers. We are already living in times of great uncertainty. The church must offer safe doctrine, not fluid matter. A Carthusian motto reads, Stat crux dum volviter orbis. The cross is still while the world turns. Here we must recover the strong sense of our faith. We must reach those who are far away, but to bring them back to the fold, not to have them take us out of our home. We remember that St. John Paul II, at the beginning of his pontificate, asked us not to be afraid and to open the doors to Christ. But from whom I observe, it seems to me that many in the church are worried about pleasing the world rather than pleasing him. And quote. He's not wrong. The focus on the church for the last decade at least has been on pleasing the world. Benedict gave his famous Regensburg address, which was not meant to please the world. You remember that if you've been paying attention for longer than a lot of people have. But it's very clear that what we're in business now of is pleasing the world, which is unfortunate. All right, folks, that's Cardinal Zen. So I'm curious, what do you think about Cardinal Zen? So what, what he's saying here and the, the that synodal document that I brought to you and as well as what Henry Sear said at the beginning. And if you're joining us late, you will probably want to see the beginning of this. I will be revisiting the comments from Henry Sear tomorrow, except this will be I can't go into the full thing because it's you can listen to the full thing if you want elsewhere. But there will be a few of his comments I'm going to zero in on and talk about because his his article is essentially he wrote his book you know, almost a decade ago now. And he found out that things were much worse even then than he realized. And so he's, it's almost like an addendum to his famous novel or his famous work of nonfiction. Catherine reminds us that the Synod had non-Catholics and he worries that she worries that they would allow non-Catholics to participate in the election of the Roman pontiff. Don't put anything past them. And also don't give them ideas, please. <laughs> Somebody might be like, Hmm, that's a good idea. But um, yes. So, I personally always like hearing from Cardinal Zen and I enjoy, and always enjoy bringing you his thoughts because as Linda says, his response is right on the money. The church is in the bright right now. It's not the church. It's the prelates within the church. Many of whom have positions they probably shouldn't have and may not legitimately hold are giving people are just adding to confusion. And what the world needs right now is the Catholic church to be unambiguous and clear in its teachings and firm in its teachings. All right, folks. I'm curious what you have to think about this. So let me know in the in the um, in the live chat. And if you are just joining us late, the uh, or if you're watching this later, I will have everything, uh, all my the links to all this stuff in my show notes at returntotradition.org as usual. And as always, I ask you to pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.